Welcome to the 200th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. When scientist Paul Scrady was studying cerulean warblers in northeastern Iowa a few years ago, he took a shortcut through a local dairy farm to get to his research area. He was, as he puts it, blown away at the variety and numbers of grassland bird species present on the farm. Various kinds of sparrows, as well as meadowlarks, dick thistles, and perhaps most noticeable of all, bobolinks, were everywhere. Scrady is an assistant professor of biology at Upper Iowa University, and he was very excited by what he was seeing. Since many grassland songbirds have been in decline in the Midwest over the past several decades as a result of pastures, brushy fence lines, and other areas of perennial habitat being replaced by endless acres of annual row crops like corn and soybeans. Scrady later asked the owner of the farm, Phil Specht, if the avian paradise he had walked through was farmland that had been taken out of production via a set-aside initiative like the Conservation Reserve Program. No, said Specht, those birds were thriving in pastures he was producing livestock on. Phil has in place a managed rotational grazing system that, by varying the amount of time cattle stay in each paddock, creates a diverse grassland habitat. It turns out such heterogeneity is perfect for grassland songbirds, as well as other critters like pollinating insects. Speck feels this kind of pasture management is more economically viable, since it provides low-cost feed and develops a kind of resilient grasslands that can do well under droughty conditions, for example. But there's another important reason he manages his land this way. For years, he and his late brother, Dan Specht, had a kind of competition going to see who could produce the most bobolinks on their farms. Before he was killed in a haying accident in 2013, Dan used managed rotational grazing to produce beef on a farm near Phil's. An avid naturalist and former board member of the Land Stewardship Project, Dan was constantly on the lookout for ways he could determine if his farming methods were contributing to the development of a working ecosystem. Bobolinks are very dependent on diverse grassland habitat, and as Dan saw it, when good numbers of the lively black and white birds were present on his land, it was an indicator that a working ecosystem was also present. After Dan's death, his friend Mary Dom, a prairie ecologist, bought much of his land. Since then, she's been working with Phil to develop a research project measuring the impact managed rotational grazing has on grassland habitat, as well as bobolinks. Mary and Phil recently hosted a Practical Farmers of Iowa field day on Dom's land to showcase how grazing and bird habitat can go hand in hand. The day didn't disappoint. Numerous bobolinks and other grassland birds were making good use of the rotationally grazed paddocks on the farm. After the field day, I chatted with Paul Scrady and Phil Specht about how a farm that is based on creating a working ecosystem can thrive environmentally and economically. Scrady started out talking about how the particular manner in which Phil grazes makes all the difference in creating a living, resilient landscape. We, we, we just uh, had this field day here where we kind of were talking, we were looking at some of the things that Phil Specht and Mary Dom are doing here on this land to try to kind of create a, a working ecosystem that's also a working farm. And you had talked a little bit about, during your presentation, about kind of the first time you were doing research, I think, on Cerulean warblers. You were actually just using part of Phil's land to get across to where you wanted to do the research, but you had your eyes really opened about uh, how a working farm, a working landscape can produce some incredible habitat for birds. Could you describe describe that day a little bit or that experience of, of, of what happened that day? You bet. So in order to get into the property that I was trying to survey for cerulean warblers, I had to hike 
two miles cross country. And in northeast Iowa, that's not like walking across the street. It's climbing bluffs and going down into ravines. And when I looked at the map, I realized I actually knew the landowner to the north. And it was it was Phil Specht. And I called him up and I said, Phil, I'm doing these surveys in Bloody Run. It would really help me out if I could just cut across your property. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. Beware. The, the wires are going to be hot. There's cattle out there. And I said, oh, I'm, I grew up in egg. I know how this works. And so I got up early the next morning and I... I parked up at the gate because I, I wasn't going to drive my Prius across his fields and started hiking across there. And it was dark at that point. But when I was hiking out after doing my surveys, I was blown away by the bird species I was seeing out there. So first thing I noticed was that he had dozens of bobolinks out there singing and carrying on and, and um, having territorial interactions with each other. And I was, I was really impressed because range-wide bobolinks are undergoing a decline and they're a species of greatest conservation concern in, in Iowa. And we've seen big declines in, in grassland birds uh, for the last 50 years, but it seemed like Phil had a lot of bobolinks on his property. And as I'm walking, I was like, oh, he's got bobolinks over here. He's got both eastern and western meadowlarks singing. There's sedrens over there. I was just floored by the, the biodiversity that I was seeing and all these great grassland birds that we're really trying to protect in the state of Iowa right now. And so when I talked to him, I said, Phil, this is amazing. You've got these great birds. What, what, is, what is it you're doing out here? And he said, well, you know how you cut through all those different fences? Well, I've got all these little small pastures that I'm rotating the cattle through where we do a really intense grazing and then I move them after a really short period of time. So it's really labor intense on his part, but he's, he's creating this heterogeneous uh, habitat across this, this, these pastures. And when you get this diverse habitat that's got lots of diverse structure and different species in there, you're, you see the response in the bird and insect and plant populations as well. And so it's, it's really great. So the heterogeneity he's creating in the structure, the, the birds are responding in that, and we're seeing a greater diversity of bird species too. Rotational grazing is one step beyond just having a permanent pasture, but farmers like Phil are taking it another step and kind of trying to create that diversity uh, out there that you don't see even on... Uh, kind of, I guess, traditional rotationally grazed pastures. You bet. And so what, what Phil is kind of creating here is kind of mimics what the bison were doing millennia ago. They're in there really intensely. They're, they're creating a lot of disturbance, but then they move on. And, and that's what we're seeing here. So you can walk through some of his fields right now in the middle of June, and it, you'd hardly know that there were cattle in there a month ago. It looks, it's this beautiful tall grass, and you've got all these different birds that are out there singing and, and setting up territories and, and nesting and producing young, and it's, it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, it's very intense, and it, it takes a lot of work on his part, but we definitely see the dividends in, in grassland birds. Does that, does that kind of, uh, uh, I guess, go against maybe some beliefs you had about agriculture? Uh, uh, coming here to Iowa and seeing, uh, you know, how the monocultural system, but maybe making then assumptions, well, agriculture and wildlife habitat don't mix? Well, I would say at different points in my life, I've had different beliefs in that. So for my graduate work in Montana, I was working with ranchers and I could see how cattle and, and wildlife could really co coexist. Uh, but in Iowa, a lot of what we see is the, the monoculture of corn and soybean rotation of these huge fields and they're basically a, a desert where you don't get any of the biodiversity. And so, yeah, I, I was really impressed though to see this labor-intense process that Phil's doing and, and how it's paying off with, with the bird species up here. Talk a little bit more about that heterogeneity in, in that in that you were talking about it's not it's it's two things it's it's height and and the diversity of species correct that's kind of important well you bet so heterogeneity is that difference that we see out there so hetero meaning different and and across the different fields that he's got here he has 
different heights from bare ground all the way, like especially the high traffic areas near the water sources, you see a lot more bare ground with very little vegetation, all the way up to really, really tall rank vegetation and some shrubs and trees and areas where he has kind of permanent fence lines going through. And so yeah, so it's definitely a difference in structure and a lot of the species are responding to that. But it's also, he sees a difference in the in the vegetation that's out there too, depending on the season, how recently the, the cattle have been in there. Um, I'm definitely not a botanist, but just walking across his fields, I can see how there's a lot of diversity of, of grassland uh, plant species that we see out there as well. Well, I can attest to, we just walk, did a short bird walk around uh, a couple of Phil's paddocks here that he has set up on, on Mary's farm. And I don't, I counted at least, I think, eight different bobolink, male bobolinks alone, uh, let alone the female bobolinks who don't stand out as much. Dick Sissels, uh, I don't know what all, what else did, were we seeing out there? You bet. So the bobolinks are the most impressive because they're one that we really don't see in big numbers in Iowa anymore. Uh, but yeah, sedrens are another one. Dick Sissels, there were a couple meadowlarks out there. It's, it's one thing to say that you've got a lot of bobolinks, but when you've got more bobolinks than meadowlarks in an area, that's pretty impressive. Fairly common species like savanna sparrows, uh, but he's got rarer species that we didn't see today, such as henslow sparrows and grasshopper sparrows as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's pretty impressive the, the biodiversity he's got out here. One thing that Phil likes to talk about is that, and, and his brother Dan used to talk about as well, is Dan felt this especially, and now Phil has has adopted this philosophy too, is that when you see bobolinks, it shows the system is working. And that's, you know, you don't want to focus too much on just one species, but is it true, a little bit true in that if you know that there's bobolinks there, that you know that maybe that grassland system is healthy enough to support a diversity of, of wildlife and, and, and I guess uh, species out there? Yeah, you bet, definitely, Brian. Uh, there are a lot of indicator species out there that, that respond to habitat in, in different ways. And so bobolinks are an example that we've got here in this grassland because when you've got a mature grassland that's had some grazing, had some disturbance, um, but still kind of middle height, yep, you're going to get those, you're going to get bobolinks. And so that is their way of kind of showing, hey, look, we've got these species. And so we're, we're, our ecosystem is functioning, as I guess how they would put it. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned a little bit about some fun research you think would be good to do, uh, I guess, follow-up research in an area. You don't, you aren't really researching specifically what they're doing. You've just kind of observed this. But what would be kind of, I guess, research that would be useful in terms of both getting the message out to the environmental community and scientists, as well as farmers, about how this, maybe a system like this could be set up, uh, um, you know, and, and kind of, I guess, get more of that, uh, put some numbers to this, that kind of thing. What, what, would, what would we need to see? You bet. So it's, it's definitely one thing to say, we've got bobolinks, and so our ecosystem is functioning. But it's another to make sure that they actually are productive, you know, that, that we aren't creating an ecological trap per se, where if the birds are, are coming in and they're nesting and then some predator is eating all of the nests and eggs and, and there's no actual productivity here. So I would definitely like to test that next. So I don't work with them at the moment, but Phil and I have been talking about how incredible it would be to ban some of these birds and kind of look at their annual survival. Are the same birds returning from year after year? How do they move around the landscape? So are they, do they come to this one patch and they stay there for two or three seasons? Um, what kind of interactions are there between the, the adults and the younger birds um, from year to year? And then also too, looking at nest success. So that's, that's that productivity and following that the fledgling success too. So how, what proportion of the nests actually make it to hatch? And then of the, the eggs that hatch, what proportion of the young actually make it to, to fledging, to flying, to adulthood? And so that would be really interesting too. So yeah, that would, that would help tell us that, you know, this really is working. Next, Phil Specht explained the strategy that goes into his grazing system and why bobolinks are such an important indicator of whether a working grassland ecosystem has been created. 
Phil, we, uh, we, we talked about that connection between trying to create good bird habitat, grassland bird habitat, bobolinks, that type of thing, and dovetailing it in with kind of that working lands landscape and, you know, productivity for your dairy farm and, and that type of thing. And one of the things, Paul, um, he said that it's not just the fact that you have pastures, but you have this heterogeneity, you have this diversity both of species and of height of plants that's really working here and making a working ecosystem. Can you describe a little bit of, you consciously think about that, that's not by accident, how you've kind of created that over the years, you've kind of created that kind of diversity of, of habitat. I have ended up with that diversity that he sees now by my uh, management of grazing, rotational management intensive grazing, where in order to give proper rest to the various parts of the field, I uh, sequenced them such that there would always be one day to the next day to the next day's difference in grass height. And that was part of my original goal when I started grazing back in the 70s was to try and figure out how to best manage grazing for milk. And as I developed my system, I became interested in seeing the diversity that was happening and in, in 1995, it was kind of a seminal aha moment, I did a Practical Farmers Field Day in 1995 on beneficial insects and leaving a portion of a field for the beneficial. And that was the first year I started the, the uh, practice of a refuge. So we had this refuge for the beneficials, and I saw if you left uh, as little as 5% of the field... In beneficial refuges, you would get the same benefit as if you sprayed without killing all the insects. And so that was kind of a, a moment when I realized that, hey, you don't have to fight nature. You can work with it. I, I had originally been a part of the low-input sustainable agriculture movement back in the 80s, and it was more a response to the farm crisis and the lack of capital and that squeeze and so we were just reducing expenses anywhere you could, one of which was spraying your hay fields. And so uh, it ended up me, and I accepted that. But when I was doing my original shift over to all grazing, it was simply because an acre of pasture was more profitable than an acre of corn. And once I discovered the path to profitability was through my cows and grazing grass, then I got into the management of the grass and then I got the diversity of the grass. And then all of a sudden, after a period of one of my rules was protect the sod. Just don't mess, just whatever you do, don't put cattle in there at the wrong time or what. Protect the sod, protect that grass resource. So from the process of sustainability and whatever, somewhere in there is when I just dawned on me that, hey, I got a working grassland ecosystem. And then all of a sudden, they all these different species just started showing up until where it's documented now. They're all there. And they're all there because I do these refuges. I leave every year. There's some place on my farm that's untouched. I put the hot wire around it and don't touch it. I've got a couple that I just leave that are permanent refuges right in the middle of the cows go on either side of it for years, but they're in the middle. There's this grass that's never been touched. And then under my fences, my fencing system has been in place now 30-some years where the native species are coming up where nothing's ever grazed. 
So I've got this trampling effect, and it stimulates some of the perennials, and there's an amazing diversity of plant life, which means that there's an amazing diversity of insects, which means that all birds like that. So I got all these birds. And so I think it, that Paul figured it out right, that it's just because of this, the fact that I've got all these different things going. Take me through a typical grazing cycle or, or with a paddock, because you had described this a little bit. It's, there's rotational grazing, and then there's the kind of rotational grazing you do where it sounds like you, you take half and you leave half, but you, you really, it's a conscious effort to go through that system and leave different length, different heights of vegetation. Describe that a little bit. Half of it left. A lot of people would think that's a lot of leaving. But what I've found is over the years, I can you can like hit a dry, dry spell and I'll have grass. And if you had grazed that off and taken more, you won't have that regrowth in a hot, dry spell. And so I've, I've got a whole bunch of different little tricks that I use. The main one is, I'll call it extensive-intensive. So I'll go through the first time and fast extensively so I'll take out a bunch or open a bunch of gates so that they go in a large area and then another large area so in a period of a week or 10 days I'll cover the whole farm and then I'll go back from where I started from and go to the most productive looking spot I've got that's uh has enough grass so that I can take half and leave half and get that that good production and so say First time through, uh, the saying that I said out here was I learned from my grandfather, the grass will wave and beckon the cattle. So don't turn them out until there's enough leaf area that when the wind blows through it, it's waving. Mm -hmm. So the grass is waving, you turn them out, it's about eight inches high, you take half, it's four. So you're taking from eight to four, you're still taking half. The next time through, we did the measurements, and the bob links are here, and it's in May, and the grass is 15 inches, and you take it down to seven. And then the next time through, it will be maybe 14 or 13 or 12. And then with these old stems up, and at that point, I'm messing around with carbon sequestration and what I think soil health effects of. So I've got, at, this, at that point of the season, I'll go to a biennial type of thing where I'll take some of the paddocks that work them harder than others in the next year reverse it. So I've actually got two years and these different methods going on, and uh, one of which is when the bobolinks are done, this is a whole subject in itself, the bobolink thing. Mm -hmm. But uh, my, my brother was a naturalist, and he always said if the bobolinks are there, it's all working. So th that's the indicator species. So the bobolinks are there. They come in early May. Uh, they've come anywhere from the 6th to the, I think, the 10th. But they're right around the 8th. Most years, there's bobolinks here on the 8th day of May. So that means I've already been grazing with that grass will wave business. It's out there waving, and the grass are going through, the, the cattle are going through. And uh, my scientific study is over uh, whether or not they nest in grazed or ungrazed, what's the height preference when they decide where to nest. An issue that Paul showed and I was kind of surprised the savanna sparrows seem to be anywhere the bobolinks are and I've got a lot of savanna sparrows a few henslow sparrows a few grasshopper sparrows I've got a Fuji fine picks automatic camera that can't ever focus on a bare 
no no streaks for whatever reason it just I can't get that bird in focus <laughs> but I I've heard them so I've got western and eastern battle arcs but the only way to tell them apart is is uh, by singing mm -hmm. but they go on the sh in the paths so they're nesting in the paths and I I realize maybe why I see the savanna sparrows as you said they like short grass too well that's my my paths in the actual lanes for the cows. Uh, I've got the killdeer and the horn lark in the bare ground, mm -hmm. right in the cow lanes. And so I've got a very varied ecosystem. And then now the last, it's a working grassland ecosystem. And then now at the, in, in the last few years, then my primary goal has been to enhance biodiversity. So now I'm starting to do things that might cost me a little bit of milk just to add another species. And so I did stuff like where I've got this uh, asters, I made two hot wires. So I've got the main system hot wire, mm -hmm. and then I, I moved over eight or ten feet wherever I saw them. Any, any place on my farm now where there's any kind of odd habitat, mm -hmm. uh, I've got savanna flowers, other species, and, and on the edge of the woods is... I just would sacrifice, it goes back to my refuge, but my refuge would might be in one place, it might be 30 feet by 150 feet, and then I'd bend the wire back around because there's a species there. And so now I'm, I'm farming for biodiversity. It would seem, uh, you, you mentioned this, that you're doing some things to maybe to sacrifice milk production, and maybe in the short term, you're not maximizing production every season, getting the most out of the you know, since you're leaving half or whatever, doing some of these things. But it's, I wonder if you're seeing over the longer term, it's actually more productive because you've got more resilience. You, you can, you know, you, you're resilient to drought and you're, you're, you're building that, um, I guess, that soil health in a way that you're going to have consistent forage production so that maybe over a 10-year period or whatever the uh, period of time is that, you are more productive, I guess, in the longer term. You're just not getting, you don't have a peaks and valleys. You have more of a sign uh, kind I, of situation. Have, uh, yes. <laughs> uh, it, it, you, you got to the point of it with soil health, and it's uh, one of the things that I, is kind of amazing me is I, I haven't bought any fertilizer since probably 92 might have been the last year I had a cart of fertilizer on my farm. A healthy pasture system has a lot of activity going on under the ground in the root zone and I I've, I'm of the opinion and I would really like to see this studied the height of the grass if made for hay mowed clipped taken for pasture as to what it's doing to uh, carbon sequestration in particular and I think maybe my system of enhancing biodiversity is at odds with maximizing carbon sequestration in that I've seen the most, uh, you can see it right from here, where I did the mob grazing to plant my aster seeds with the trampling. That that's kind of the, the uh, secret of Alan Savory's holistic management is that trampling. And the people that do the high-density grazing get even more hoof action. And if you, especially, I think uh, I'm communicating with some guys that are doing it, observing what I have observed, that kind of an every other year effect. So you can get just some phenomenal looking grass if you mob graze it intensively one year and then back off the next. 
and and this is without any fertilizer, without any inputs. The grass is thicker. It's thicker, cool season grasses in a productive system doesn't necessarily mean more biodiversity. So I'm working against my primary goal, but I'm observing. And the science of that, uh, uh, there are people that are studying now that we finally got the tools to the percentage of, of the more complex carbon uh, molecules that are that are in the soil. And so the soil, uh, as it's building these aggregates, sequestering carbon and complex carbon structures that don't give up like sugars do that go down or in the water, very water soluble. The simple carbons are water soluble and the more complex ones aren't. And I would say the one thing that I've noticed after 30 years of not disturbing grass and, and managing it for productivity is that there's almost zero runoff. The infiltration rates of my fields are incredible. Well, we saw a prime example. They did a demonstration here with the two, the soil clod that was from a chisel uh, plowed row crop field and from your pastures here. And I sat there, I was sitting next to it during the presentations, and an hour later, a good half of the chisel plowed sample was gone and dissolved into the bottom of the jar. And yours was like slow motion. There was maybe a few things trickling to the bottom, but it was as solid as can be. It really was a great example, I think, of that aggregate structure that you see. The sample was taken from a baby. Uh, this is the newest sod on in the, my 350 acres of uh, grassland, the sample was taken out of the least likely to do that. Yeah, well, I will just say one final thing in that you talked about when the bobolinks are here, everything's working. And if that's true, things are working because we went out into the here and we did a bird walk around a couple of your paddocks and I saw eight, at least eight bobolinks, male bobolinks and some females that aren't as noticeable because of the coloration. And so, yeah, it's working from what I can tell. Yeah, thanks. That's very good. For more on what Land Stewardship Project members are doing to create working ecosystems on working farmland, see www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank <laughs> you.